for the week of October 25th, 2020. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. With Mandalorian Season 2 premiering this week, John and I wrap up our discussion on the first season of Disney Gallery by diving into the two final episodes, Score and Connections. John, what did you think of these final two episodes? Well, the the whole series has been a real treat for anyone that really likes to nerd out on the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, There hasn't been a misfire of any of the episodes. But I gotta say, uh, the score is next to the, the one that is that has all the information about the volume that we covered last week. Um, this is probably my second favorite episode because it really is kind of fun to kind of get in the head of uh, Ludwig. So I had a lot of fun with that. And obviously connections, there's no star Wars fan that isn't going to want to geek out on all the little props and, and characters that they pulled in. So there was a lot of fun to be had. And um, yeah, my only critique is I think they should have made more episodes because I, f- I feel like there's more conversations to be had, but what we got here in these last two episodes certainly were a lot of fun. It was so much fun, and like you said, the score was something really nice to dive into. I really enjoyed this one as well, and this mm. was probably my second favorite episode as well as far yeah. as this this whole Disney gallery goes. So Star Wars is kind of known for iconic scores and iconic themes, and this definitely is no exception to the world of Star Wars, but it's also different. And so I liked getting into the process, this dystopian twist that they basically led Ludwig with and told him, hey, you know, we're making a Star Wars project, but don't actually pursue what John Williams has done. Mm-hmm. So what did you think about the overall process of Ludwig, like, you know, purchasing a bunch of flutes and <laughs> sitting in and locking himself in his studio? Not flutes, recorders, something yeah. far more rudimentary, which just adds to the charm, right? He even says, you know, it gives it a bit of a childish quality because this is the the go-to instrument for like kindergarten music class, right? It doesn't matter if you destroy these things. They're just, you know, plastic tubes, basically. Um, but darn it all, you put them in the right hands and you can make something that's eerie and yeah dystopian is the perfect word we never quite were able to put our fingers on exactly what this music evoked when we've talked about this during our regular reviews but i think that is a good word because there there was a trend in 70s cinema Mm -hmm. that we knew that this was touching on and we just just couldn't quite find it but i think that that really is uh the best way to sum it up my my overall feeling on kind of how they present their process or or what the mandate was to ludwig Gordonson is that it was the perfect decision to make if now watching back on the Mandalorian, if they had the Royal orchestral classical John Williams score, it would feel wrong, right? Because so much of the show's personality is encapsulated in the tone of the music. And the fact that they were willing to carve their own path makes the show distinct. It evokes a a certain emotional reaction when you hear the the score swell up in the beginning of each episode after the the cold open. So there's there's just so much they did right in breaking with tradition that I have to applaud it. Because a lot of times when you try to reinvent something that is already working, you don't usually come up with anything better. But in this case, I think it was the right decision for this project. And uh, I, I think it was a masterstroke of uh, the creatives involved that they were wise enough to know that they, they had to give this a distinct flavor. 
And it really shows the dedication that Favreau was talking about in a few episodes ago where he's saying, we don't want to be inspired by Star Wars. We want mm-hmm. to be inspired by the things that inspired right. Star Wars. And so you bring in inspiration from the Kurosawa films and from spaghetti right. westerns that is like, that's basically what they tell this composer to do. It's just, hey, this is our inspiration. You know, do something with it. Run away with it. And I thought that it was interesting that uh, that he basically debuted this theme uh, while Bryce Dallas Howard was filming her episode. And so she was kind of the first director to really hear this and just the, everyone being so impressed with that. And they're listening to it <laughs> on an iPhone. And then we get it on, you know, of course, quality speakers on right. our big screens that make it even better. And so, yeah, it's like you said, we couldn't quite get it right what they were going for. But it, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, that's exactly what mm-hmm. this is. This is perfect. Yeah. The first couple episodes that we watched, it felt really jarring and new and a little frightening to be watching Star Wars that was just a little bit tweaked. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm comfortable with, with them messing with Star Wars. But yeah, no, they they walk that line. And uh, uh, you, you have to give them credit because one of the big things, you know, like you just mentioned, without reiterating too much is they wanted to carve their own path while still staying true to the, the fundamental underpinnings of star Wars. And that's exactly what they uh, accomplished with this, right? Like we, we see his approach and how he creates unique themes, but really what you have to take notice of is this is a TV show and they're creating an entirely original uh, cinema quality score for it. So even if it's different, the, uh, the legacy of star Wars being, these are grand outing movies. Like these are events movies before you know there was the the cliche blockbuster movie these were movies where you pull out all the stops and everything had to you know feel special and cared for Mm -hmm. and so you can see that there was passion put into this and it wasn't just we have a tv show we kind of know what star wars sounds like just hire someone that maybe worked on the cartoons or something not that the guys that worked on the cartoons didn't do a great job too like there's a lot of good talent there but you know what i'm saying like they could have uh i think favor put it best that they they could have um uh, they they could have taken like the easy path or yeah. they, you know, they could have basically phoned it in and just said, let's just do the star Warsy thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that diverted from that, I think is what really brings a lot of charm to the project and still in a weird way, still just works, works masterfully. Yeah. And this is something that I really enjoyed basically that this whole approach that they had with this score where it's like, let's actually do something on our own. And we had Kyle from Tumbling Saber on uh, a couple months ago mm-hmm. discussing yep. Clone Wars. And he posed that question, like, are we willing to get away from this kind of classical score? And I really pushed up against it. I was like, no, we can't get away <laughs> from the original score. We have to keep it. But it's like, you know, when we get into the new eras of film of Star Wars, whatever they're going to be, the score definitely needs to match the tone of it like the Mandalorian score has matched the tone perfectly of this entire TV series. Yeah. Yeah. If we ever see another star Wars trilogy or like a, an epic saga type of format for a series of star Wars films, uh, there's some traditions that they'll obviously want to keep, but it seems right at this point, especially since John Williams is, well, he's basically effectively retired, right? He's just, he's getting too old to commit to another nine film saga. So, um, you have to let someone else step in and bring their voice to it. Because when George Lucas approached John Williams, it wasn't because he knew that he was going to deliver a star Wars score. It's because he was putting his trust in someone that showed a lot of talent and a lot of love for cinema and could just bring something right for this project. So as long as 
the people involved creatively bring in the right people to find the voice for whatever the the series or project or movie is at this point we can accept that music will be more diverse in star wars and it mm-hmm. it was such a foreign concept before the show but i get it now and i'm willing to embrace that there's certain yeah. things with star wars i will never embrace like I, I don't want like a super dark gritty like um batman v superman kind of star wars like i don't want them to reinvent it and make it like too grown up or you know too harsh or something like i I want them to remember their audience and some of the things that make star wars more charming and fun but creatively i'm i'm willing to let them bring new people into the fold now and and i'm glad that this show has opened my eyes to that concept because i'm usually kind of a fuddy-duddy that way i just like things the way i like things (laughs) yeah well and it it also is when uh Gornson is talking about all of his different uh, approaches to it. Basically, step one, I'm going to read the entire series up front. So give me the entire season one. I'm going to read all the script and I'm going to, you know, go into my mind palace and create something. <laughs> uh, but the, his approach of making every episode unique, but feeling connected by having similar themes to it. And I thought that that was super cool, especially in the escape episode where they're prison breaking this guy out of prison. Because when they were showing clips of that in this episode of gallery, I was like, I never like, I never caught it back then that Mm -hmm. they were controlling the anticipation. Like I was on the edge of my seat with this, with this score. Yeah. They showed up front, like in one of the, the very first sequences of the score episode, they show, um, some of the projects that Ludwig had worked on before he came to Star Wars, and they showed that he's very comfortable with um, uh, electronic uh, sequencing and synthesizers. And he had uh, just a, a room full, like floor to ceiling full of mm-hmm. blinking <laughs> boxes that w- allow him to create you know, beats and rhythms and atmospherics and just whatever soundscape he wants to generate. He has all these electronic gizmos that he can pair together. Uh, yeah. With, with a bunch of um, like guitar cables to, to just achieve whatever he wants. So it's very interesting that even though that wasn't his initial approach to the Mandalorian, when he got to an episode that takes place inside a sterile spaceship with blinking lights and shiny white walls, and it feels more sci-fi than fantasy. Yeah. He's like, well, I know what to do here. Yep. <laughs> and and you see him tap into that and it's so effective. And and like you said, you don't really realize it when you're watching the show because it fits organically and it's still woven into the, the, the larger orchestration of it, right? Cause there is still classical instrumentation throughout mm-hmm. the show. It's just these very interesting instrument choices mm-hmm. uh, that he layers on top of it to, you know, make it his own that really sets it apart from your typical star Wars score, but it still has, you know, the, the grandiosity of, of a a star Wars score. And in that episode, you're right. It's very interesting that they switch it up and he just says, yeah, this one, this one's different. I I need something different. I need it to fit with the the larger piece, but I really want to have some, some punctuation in some of these moments that feels a little bit different or a little bit more, uh, thriller horror mm-hmm. and also yeah technical almost like 2001 kind of sci-fi feel to it so there's yeah. there there's something very interesting about his creative eye and um, just what he taps into when he watches something visually and just says how do i represent that with sound mm-hmm. uh there's a genius to that and yeah. uh, this guy is definitely a talented dude and uh what serendipity that they found him for the project 
Yeah, and it's so perfect that he was found the way he was found because, of course, you have Kugler bringing him up, and then, of course, Glover, who's like, hey, I worked with this guy on a yeah. piece. You need to at least bring him in and talk to him about this. And then, like you said, he brings in what he has previously worked on, which is a very techno-y sound. So when they told him dystopian, he's like, yep, I know what I need mm-hmm. to do here. Uh, but then he also he still honored star Wars. Like he's like, I'm not going to be inspired by it, but I'm still going to have like requests like this full orchestra to bring right. everything that I've been working on together. Um, his whole approach was fascinating. And I was so, so pleased on this episode where it was just a lot of him talking about his approach, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. I love getting into the mind of creators and listening to to that whole thing because it was it was truly it was truly like fresh chicken nuggets. I loved it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can't really build on that. This was a lot of fun. I mean, we can just gush about how well it works. Um, but honestly, I, I can't think of anything else technically to add to the conversation other than it was just a good creative eyes that saw his value to the project and uh, he delivered he really really delivered and just one more on a, a heaping pile of wins that this show has accomplished and it's nice that uh, they took 40 minutes to just you know really give him an attaboy and say hey you did a good job let's let's really put the spotlight on you for a few minutes so people understand the, the love and craft that's going into this show and uh, i'm excited to see what he does with season two right we're going yeah. to new planets uh some new themes in the episodes and we know that the creative well hasn't run dry with where they want to take the story so now that we're introduced to Ludwig and we kind of know his process when we're watching it, we're going to be like, yeah, I see what you did there. That's a cool cue. And yeah, yeah, you're, you're thinking outside the box. And I wouldn't have approached it that way, but darn it all. If that isn't a, a, a cool way to approach this scene. So now we're going to, I don't know. We're going to just kind of feel like he's our buddy as we're watching mm-hmm. it. All right. We kind of, we kind of got a sense of what he's bringing to the show. And so now it's just like, he's one of the directors or one of the actors or something. Mm-hmm. He's now, you know, part of it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in the pantheon of people that we're going to credit with this show. And I was just happy to get to know him. Yeah. And I was so surprised at how present he was on set and yeah. speaking with Favreau. Sometimes directors and producers, they just bring on a big name and they give them the movie after it's been filmed and said, hey, score this. Like, right. just whatever you got, we have faith in you. But he was there. He was present. Um, and one of the big things that it did for me is it reassured uh, that Lucasfilm is taking on this new approach to Star Wars that it's like, we're not just going to do Star Wars the way that maybe we started doing it. We're kind of going to do our own thing. And that's what Favreau says. He's like, we're not necessarily Star Wars. We're kind of like a spinoff or we're, a, uh, we're our own thing that is kind of an offshoot of Star Wars, mm-hmm. which, you know, especially with the TV shows, like you have that freedom to really be an offshoot because this is a galaxy. I mean, you have these plethora of planets and these plethora of stories that you can explore. So I really appreciate that Mando approach, and it gives me a lot more interest in some of the other projects that are coming about, like the Cassian series. Like, Mm -hmm. what's that going to feel like? Because Favreau and company have really laid the foundation of you guys don't have to have a lightsaber in every other episode. You don't have to bring up Luke's name. You don't have to do that in order for it to feel like Star Wars. And I think that was the most hopeful thing coming out of this series. Yeah. In hindsight, if if they had uh, been too overly concerned with pandering to the fan base and just giving us kind of like our junk food Star Wars, like what we're expecting, you know, what's familiar, they'd start boxing themselves in because that gets tired. Even with the new movies, a lot of people are like, huh, it, it just kind of seems like we've seen this before in these movies, right? We're repeating a lot of mm-hmm. themes and, you know, our, our heroes feel familiar and our storylines feel familiar and our bad guys feel familiar. So they need to carve a new path 
and they need to expand what Star Wars can be so that they can, well, basically continue to build out their IP, continue to create a rich universe for us to to play in. Because, yeah, if you stick too close to that original formula, as tasty as that formula is, we will get tired of it if mm-hmm. we just get it over and over again. Back in the day, in the 70s, 80s, and well, even the 90s, Star Wars was an every 15 years thing and then an every three years thing. Yeah. So. All you wanted is just get my butt back in the theater and give me more of that good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So reinventing it was a liability. You didn't want to do that. You wanted like, I want more Luke. I want more lightsabers. I want more Darth Vader. Um, But we're past that now, right? That's not how TV works. And that's not how building out a franchise the way that they're inevitably going to have to now that TV is kind of like their best avenue for projects right now. So yeah, there there is definitely some some steady hands and some some good shepherding of the ip going on at star wars you know despite whatever misgivings we might have about maybe where the movies have last left off i am equally as excited about where these projects are going to go because like you said now we know that they can deliver anything and as long as the the core underlying fundamental things that make it star wars or star wars whatever else they decide to fuse in is just going to start to feel right as long as they've got that core nailed and uh, yeah, if they use Mandalorian as the template, then we're in for some real treats. Yeah. Uh, and one of the maybe positive things we won't know until we actually see it of COVID-19 is that it caused Disney to kind of reevaluate <laughs> sure. everything. And especially right. like Star Wars, where it's like Bob Iger came back on after temporarily retiring and yeah. said, you know what? We're maybe gonna- it's not the right time. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of like pushed back and said, maybe we're going to focus on television. Mandalorian yeah. did so well. So maybe we're going to focus on that. But with all that being said, John Favreau didn't miss a beat to add in different connections to <laughs> the Mandalorian. And they brought in some crazy things like some props from the films. And uh, of course the inspiration of characters like Quill and uh, IG 11. Right. So the ice cream maker, <laughs> yes. that to me was something I did not notice when I watched the Mandalorian, that this was right. th- that same inspiration. I didn't pick up on it. But that shows how invested and how knowledgeable Filoni and Favreau are of the fan base. Yeah, I love that. Well, Filoni in particular, right? Not only has he done the convention side of things, he's been the kind of he's not really the story group but he's been kind of the torch bearer of the the myth of star wars for a long time so he's obviously steeped in it he's an uber fan so he's gonna know those little things that the fans have latched onto that are meaningful for the fans but it'll go right past casual viewers and that's the kind of fan service that's perfect because you don't want something that's so like obvious and in your face that you're like yeah I, i see what you've done there and now you've taken me out of the story to you know splash some fan service on the screen with something like this it doesn't you don't skip a beat because it, it, it makes sense. It's it's an organic thing to weave into the story. Mm-hmm. But for people that, you know, you can wink at, you can wink at the same time. And that's that's when fan service is done right. And uh, what a fun thing to add context to Empire Strikes Back, too, because mm-hmm. that background character, when he runs by and he's got the ice cream maker, you're like, OK, so Cloud City is under distress and he just really wants to save his ice cream maker. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you want to look at it, you might be like, why would you care about bringing uh-huh. your ice cream maker with you? But what Mandalorian does is it says, no, no, these are super secure carrying cases for the most valuable things that you could possibly ever have in your possession. Yeah. So the brilliance of this fan service here is that it makes so much sense in the context of the Mandalorian story, because of course this is Beskar. This is something that if you didn't have it in one of these super secure briefcases, you, it would be, you know, uh, a target people would want to steal it. So of course you need this thing that, you know, opens up like, like, like flowers open and, you know, you need a special code to get in. It's like a secure lockbox or whatever totally fits. Yeah. And 
and to now take that and impose that on the scene in empire strikes back makes it even more fun like he basically robbed the safe thinking okay this is my moment i work in the you know i work in the accounting department on cloud city and um i know the combination of the safe if things are going to pot and the empire's here i'm taking the money i'm getting on a, a pod and i'm getting out of here um so i don't know i i found that to be incredibly amusing and i know that you know all the the nerds that bring their ice cream makers to conventions i'm sure we're thrilled as well to see it yeah uh and and another thing about this episode is that there wasn't a whole lot that really informed me on like aha moments the ice Mm. cream maker was one of them yeah um but we we discussed this in like the first mandalorian uh episode when we were reviewing the very first trailer ever we brought up things like the rifle and right uh those type of things but one of the things that i found interesting and i never picked up on it before is we never had heard an ug not speak other mm. than because an empire strikes back yeah, they squeal. Of, they're squealing they're grunting yeah. and that was the approach of feloni and favreau was like originally he right. was just going to speak in grunts with subtitles and they kind of looked at that and were like nope that's that's going to be stupid let's actually bring in um a, a voice and have <laughs> him speak english here yeah favreau was actually kind of humble about acknowledging that he really wanted to go down that path and Mm -hmm. feloni didn't give him much pushback he just kind of let him get there on his own to find out oh this is actually a terrible approach um nice to know that they don't get so caught up in their own little uh notions of what the show should be in their head that they stick to it even when it's obviously the wrong creative choice they they brought that out in some of the previous episodes too, like where they were going to have Carl Weathers under mm-hmm. prosthetic or he was going to be a CG character or something like that. And they realized, no, Carl Weathers, he's got an expressive face and he's got a cool voice and a cool presence. Like, why would we, you know, layer a bunch of clay on top of something that needs to kind of be free to shine? So, yeah, I guess the running theme of our Disney gallery coverage, at least from my standpoint, is a lot of really smart, creative choices. And, mm-hmm. you know, even with their uh, fan service, it seems like they're just being really clever. Now, the trivia winner, if you go to like a Mandalorian trivia night, the trivia <laughs> winner isn't going to be the Ugnots. It's not going to be the ice cream maker. It's going to be the first human face that Dave Filoni right. directed, which was Werder Herzog. Like, oh, my gosh, what a way to launch a live action directing debut is to direct Werner Horzog. So I thought that that was an excellent kind of deep cut trivia. And I hope that comes up on one of my trivia nights because I plan on winning that night. Yeah. Um, some people, they have jobs that occasionally pay dividends creatively. Like you, you're in the midst of your job and you're like, wait a minute, how did I get here doing this thing? Like, this is something that people just don't get to do. So how is it that, you know, I'm getting to enjoy this, this fun little perk. I'm sure that over the years, Dave Filoni has had a number of those moments where he's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I made all the right moves. You know, I wanted to do something creative. I, I'm working on, uh, what was he working on? Cartoon Network or something. Mm-hmm. And then one day he pulls into Lucasfilm to start work there. And he must have been going in, in his head like, wait a minute, is this my life now? Like, is this really, th- am I really the guy? <laughs> and now, you know, he's probably had a thousand moments like that in between then and what he's doing now on The Mandalorian. But this must have been, you know, just one for the books. Yeah. Right. He, he goes from being an, an animator um on cable and now like you said uh he's been brought up to the big leagues to be the showrunner or co-showrunner on a prestige tv property the first live action star wars and he's directing the first episode and because it's star wars they got Werner herzog yeah. <laughs> in the cast and he gets to be the one like to actually mm-hmm. cut his teeth 
on such an amazing project with amazing people that, yeah, of course, that's going to make for a great anecdote. So it is fun to see that the the sheen of what his life is hasn't worn off on him. Like he hasn't yeah. become jaded to the fact that every day is a treat for yeah. what he does. Yeah. And like you said, every day is a treat for him. And that's so fascinating because he has to know that he is the second strongest mind in Star Wars. Like, there's no way that he doesn't realize that. And if he if he denies that, then he's just being modest. But this is a guy <laughs> who, I mean, if it was announced tomorrow that he was going everything Star Wars related, he was going to be, you know, watching over it. Everyone would be happy about right. it. And I don't think anyone would complain. And yeah, just him acted like a little kid like he and when I went to the monitor and I saw that it was Werner Herzog right there, I was like, oh, whoa, this is this is real. And Mm. just a lot of fun seeing how invested everyone was at every single level in this show. And it makes me even more excited for (laughs) season two. Absolutely. But there are some deep cut items that these guys brought in. So what was your favorite deep cut or your favorite addition that was kind of this uh, Easter egg cameo. Um, mine had to have been the uh, incinerator stormtrooper from the force unleashed. Right. Okay. Because I loved that game and I played it all the time. But once again, that was one that I didn't realize that it was the same stormtrooper mm-hmm. whenever it, whenever it showed up on uh, the Mandalorian. So that was my favorite takeaway or tidbit here. Okay. Um, Geez, there's a there's a lot to choose from. I love that they brought in the troop transport mm-hmm. that was, you know, a vintage toy originally. Like this isn't even a, a screen nod. This is a nod to the toy line. So that was pretty cool. And I think they did that in Rogue One too with the tank. Wasn't the tank a Kenner toy as well that they had in, yeah. in uh on Jetta? I do believe so. Yeah. So I, I think at this point, like they're thinking in those terms, like anything that can give us like a creative foothold to build what we need to serve the story is great. Um, I, I think like we've talked a lot about IG 11 and how that's a, you know, obviously a, a nod to IG 88 from empire strikes back. But I think that that is in the same way that the ice cream maker is kind of a masterstroke of weaving in fan service organically. Mm-hmm. I think IG 11 is as well, because it's not like they said, Oh, well, IG-88 is a fan favorite, so we got to wedge him into the story. No. Yeah. The Mandalorian is a bounty hunter, and IG-88 was established as a bounty hunter in Empire Strikes Back. So you understand from that and from expanded universe lore that mm-hmm. he's an assassination droid. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense that if Mandalorian is going to encounter him on a job, you know, he's going to encounter him in the role of a bounty hunter assassin. And so using ig88 as the template for ig11 was organic it made sense and it now gives you even more context again it recontextualizes that scene in empire where now something that was just kind of a silly prop that could just barely move its head it becomes something that you now have all of this context and uh obviously it's not the same droid but you you have a sense of just how menacing they can be like when they want to turn it on and just dominate you know (laughs) I think the the scene where he's got baby Yoda in the the backpack on the speeder and he's just, you know, guns are twirling around his cylindrical body and he's just multitasking and just owning the whole town and just taking out stormtroopers left and right. And you realize that if IG-11 had been the one to encounter Luke or Han Solo or, you know, whoever, you know, that could have been a serious encounter. And you now get that danger and you get that just, you know, uh, that much more um, insight on the universe. So I got to say, that's got to be like the deepest, most organic, most, mm-hmm. I, I think, satisfying one. But yeah. 
pulling in the blurs from the Ewoks. Great. Uh, bringing in an ATST and turning it into basically a stand in for a dinosaur. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving it red eyes where that's totally a cinematic choice and makes no sense. But when you think about it and you look at the interior shots from the AT-ATs and ATSTs, you realize that a lot of the panels did have red lights. So, I mean, if they, yeah. if they really want a justification for it, it kind of tracks so you can accept it and just, I don't know every creative choice on the show. I, I have yet to find one that I can really fault and say, Oh, that was a misstep. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, their choices for fan service were all fantastic. Now, one of the things about the ATST, because we talked about the menacing nature it had in that episode of Mandalorian mm-hmm, when we right. reviewed that episode. But one of the things I also didn't pick up on was that it kept to the stop motion movements that it right. had, of course, in the original trilogy. And that was one of the things that stood out to me in our last episode that we talked about, where Favreau was like, we're not going to make right. these things do anything that they can't do in practical. So yeah. let's let's give them these awkward movements. And they did the same thing with IG-11, where they made him kind of a little choppy mm-hmm. and, and added and as the a blurks. character trait. The blurks and the blurks too. as well, yeah. So those things to me, like you said, and we've hit on it so much, that the creative masterpiece behind this <laughs> is just, it's really great. Yeah, um, a lot of care. Now, the best thing, though... That's better than all those all those things was George Lucas's reaction to Favreau trying to (laughs) brag about adding this gun where Favreau's like, hey, did you see I brought in the gun that that you had for Boba Fett in the holiday special? Did you see that? And he's like kind of getting giddy about it. And George is like, uh. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> yeah, he kind of rolls his eye. It's kind of like um, a kid brings home whatever arts and craft they did at school mm-hmm. that they made just for their parents, and they think it's the most special thing. And the parent kind of has to, you know, put on a sort of an excited face for I don't know whatever this clay ashtray or something. Um, it is funny, you know. George has famously disavowed the holiday mm-hmm. special. He said if he could gather up every copy of it and destroy them, he would. And obviously, it was this big sellout, corny thing that honestly never needed to exist. And the only good thing that came out of it was our introduction to Boba Fett. It is funny that uh, Favreau didn't realize how awkward a thing he was stepping in there. Yeah. That George does not care yeah. <laughs> about reminiscing about what may have been established in the holiday special. Uh, so yeah, fun little moment there. And for the nerds that know like just how much Lucas could care less about mm-hmm. that particular detail, it's just funny because Lucas is a detail-oriented guy. Yeah. Favreau should have rightly thought that this would be a cool thing that would have warmed George Lucas's heart, but nope. Nope, you picked the wrong gag yeah. to bring to Lucas. Well, then when you think back on it, I'm pretty sure the very first Instagram post from Favreau on the Mandalorian right. set was the, gun, was yeah. the rifle. And yep. so he was super stoked about this. And then I love how Lucas corrects him when Favreau's like, well, this is canon, right? And he's kind of like, you know, tongue in cheek comment about it, of course. But <laughs> George is like, ah, oh, well, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, fun little interchange. I'm glad that they had that on camera. That's mm-hmm. a that's a good moment to capture this totally disaffected Lucas. Like, oh, OK, whatever, Favreau. Like, yeah, great. If you're into that. <laughs> and another great approach that Filoni and Favreau had was the approach to the Darksaber. Mm-hmm. And nice. I never really thought of it this way because whenever you think of the uh, the Clone Wars and of course Rebels that feature this Darksaber, you're not necessarily thinking about what that would look like on live action, but they right. actually took a kind of backwards approach like, well, in the series this would have been based on something that right. would be in live action, so we're going to make it, we're going to create it uh, like 
basically it was created first. Right. And, and I, I really appreciated that because you have these two minds, Filoni and Favreau, that are working on this. And of course, Filoni and Favreau were kind of the introduction to the Darksaber in the Clone Wars. Right. Where they spent maybe too much time on the Darksaber. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. It's a cool prop, but I wouldn't have been angry if it was like, you know, half an inch smaller than its actual measurements. Yeah, it it's interesting that when you're actually working on a production like this, you have to take your time to wrap your head around what the right approach to every little detail is, because you would think because this hasn't been established in live action that the obvious choice is just take what you see in the cartoons and, and make a prop out of it. What, what else do you need to think about? And that's the obvious and easy approach. But Filoni is absolutely right when he says you have to deconstruct it because just like the lightsabers in rebels are these thin little, you know, barely visible, um, almost like uh car antenna mm-hmm. with light beams, as opposed to on film where the nature of film has a, a measure of bloom to it and, mm-hmm. and a, a saturation of color uh, that you don't see in rebels. So in the same way that rebel stylized lightsabers or that clone wars did, like when, when the, when the lightsabers move in clone wars, um, they, they almost look like they bend because the way that they render the light, they, they kind of let it trail a bit and, and mm-hmm. build the motion blur in a little bit more definitive than it would be on film where there'd be, yeah, just more smear in, in clone wars. They, they make it a little bit harsher mm-hmm. and that gives the, the blades almost like a bending quality when they're moving quickly in clone wars. So that visual artistry is an artifact of the mediums that those stories are being told in. Mm-hmm. And so just like Anakin and Obi-Wan don't look realistic in Clone Wars and Hera doesn't look like a live action Twi'lek. Like you have to interpret what the cartoon is and yeah, deconstruct it, reverse engineer it. And uh, that's just a fun little mental game to kind of walk down with, you know, the creators as they're explaining it on the show, because yes, it's the only way to approach it responsibly. But as a casual viewer, you would never take the time to think yeah. that that has to be part of the creative design process. But on a show like this, you got to sweat the details. And, and I love that they do. And that makes me so interested to see what they're going to do with Ahsoka and Bo-Katan. Mm, and sure. if we get it, I mean, there's a lot of rumors about sure. potentially Sabine, like those type of things, those characters that were introduced on a show, like you were saying. And now we know they're taking that kind of, you know, uh, backwards approach. Right. It's going to be fascinating to see this. And I am excited to see what Ahsoka is going to look like. And I don't know how often she's going to be in there. I mean, my prediction may be two episodes. That's that's what you're going with. Uh, Yep. One to two episodes just based on leaks from the set is as much shooting time as we Mm -hmm. think Ahsoka was around for. And that's one of those things to where is she going to get a special uh, Ludwig uh, Gornson kind of introduction is is her is she going to get some sort of theme that that fits her kind of somber background that she's coming into that's what i really am looking forward to yeah see now that's very interesting because up to this point aside from bringing in background characters mm-hmm. or um realizing species as new characters that like the species may be familiar but it's a, a new you know actual character mm-hmm. um we haven't really had much overlap with previously established characters from the other properties so in the same way that like when Leia comes on screen, there's a little musical cue that's just Leia's theme, Leia's mm-hmm. introduction or whatever, or any of the other principal 
characters in the other Star Wars trilogies. So I wonder, I just wonder if maybe that's where you do get a little bit of callback and it's a little bit referential to Mm -hmm. what's been previously established in the other shows. Because if ever there was the right time to pull in a Star Wars cue from one of the other properties, it's when if Sabine's around or, Mm -hmm. you know, if uh, Ahsoka's around or anyone else that they pull in, that's that's when it would feel right. You know, when she pulls back her hood or whatever and look, it's Ahsoka there. Cue the cue the music. Um, We'll have to wait and see. But we know the music's in capable hands. So whatever they do, I'm sure it's going to feel right. And one of the few overlaps, and we are wrapping up here pretty quickly, but one of the few overlaps was the cantina and the Mm, approach to the cantina. We discussed this in our episode uh, covering the Tatooine scene, but going back to the cantina and their approach to setting it up, where they basically said, well, IG-88 was actually created from these these canisters (laughs) in the cantina. Well, even though IG-11 is an established character in this universe now, we're still going to use that that those yeah, canisters. Yeah, got to be true to the cantina. Yeah, and who's to say that in the the world of that Star Wars cantina there wasn't a bust up droid that they t- decided to turn into decorations? Like, yeah, it's it all works. And again, it's just it's attention to detail. I don't want to I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but they didn't phone in any of this. And one other thing about that cantina scene, it's all the volume aside from the bar in the middle and then the booth. The rest of it is all the volume and. Mm-hmm. You tell me if you could have spotted the seams of of that scene when you were watching it or had any indication that they're on a, a virtual LED lit set. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, chef's kiss. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> well, John, we have so much that has occurred on the on this series, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. I mean, the things we didn't get to talk about because it's just kind of uh, kind of reiterating what we've already said or things that is pretty common, like the 501st and bringing in a bunch of people that are professionals at creating right. Stormtrooper gear. Like, that is the ultimate reward to Star sure. Wars fans because they are so dedicated. If you've ever been to a Star Wars celebration, <laughs> the the fans that invest into it, and I don't invest that much, but I do have some props. I have, like, a an authentic Graflex. I have Kylo's lightsaber. I have a bunch of Funkos. I have... I have all that stuff, but I'm not nearly as dedicated or as talented to create a stormtrooper suit. But now, since Favreau's bringing in people that have created stormtrooper suits, I may have to invest. <laughs> I think that may have been like a, a once in a lifetime opportunity <laughs> for those guys. Uh, it was what I took away from that whole section of the the show was how capable they were. Right? They they commented on how they didn't have to teach them to be stormtroopers because this is the role that they've been studying for, you know, for however long they've been in the 501st. So who could ask for more capable uh, background players than the 501st? And yeah, what a perfect marriage where these guys are dedicated fans and now they get their chance to be in Star Wars. Like, yeah. darn it all. That warms my heart. <laughs> Another thing to end on is just that uh, the Deborah Chow, Filoni, and right. FMU Iwa cameo that they had. I didn't realize that it started off as a joke and that they had to go through with it. Um, <laughs> Filoni just basically <laughs> browbeat them all into being X-Wing pilots, I guess is how it went down. Yeah, and it was it was a, a great time, a whole lot of fun. I hope that whatever other Disney Plus Star Wars property shows we get we get a gallery that follows mm, it because yeah. this was so fascinating um, and that's my closing thought I want more of this I can't wait we are so close to Mandalorian season two so I can't wait to see what they are going to bring to the table for season two but John what are your closing thoughts on Disney gallery uh, well I'll second that I'll give you a, a big ditto on by all means anytime they put out a prestige show 
do one of these documentaries because us nerds will eat it up and we've got like a whole year to kill till it comes back. Right. You gotta, you gotta give us something. We need a little bread and water to get us by. So, uh, yeah, uh, I will, I will always go for this kind of stuff. And, uh, I just thought it was very, it felt very sincere and it, it gives you a sense that the people involved really care about the project. And, uh, yeah, what, what more do you want? And, and I just, I don't know. I just think this was really well done and, uh, I enjoyed revisiting it. We'd watched it through, you know, when it first came out, but watching this in the lead up to the new season of Mandalorian, what a a great way to get hyped and, and have more reverence and respect for what we're going to see, you know, in a week and a half when it premieres. And Mandalorian season two premieres on Friday, October 30th. By the time this episode (laughs) is released, that will be this coming Friday. And of course, John and I will cover each episode of The Mandalorian Season 2. Please, please, please join us on this fantastic journey. But until then, John, where can the people find you? Well, Saturday Night Live just announced that they're adding an unprecedented sixth show in a row to their Season 46 opening run of episodes uh, because of all of the craziness going on on your side of the river. Yeah. Um, so... There's lots to be said, and SNL wants to say all of it, uh, even during election week. And uh, so I'm going to be covering all of that insanity as well over on my other podcast, SNL After Party, which you can find on YouTube. We we shoot it in video and uh, release a fully edited, you know, with clips and intro music. It's 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 a, a pretty swanky podcast we're doing on YouTube now, and uh, we work hard on it. And I would love people to check it out. And if you're into the more you know audio only podcast format. We can be found on all your major podcasting apps, SNL After Party. And you can keep up with Star Wars TV Talk throughout the week by following us on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk and by emailing us at hello at StarWarsTVTalk.com. You can find the rest of our episodes at our website, StarWarsTVTalk.com. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. And may the force be with you always.